Welcome to the Bark and Jack podcast. I am Adrian, and it's been a while. How are you doing? It's it's been a while, and it's been a while because this isn't like a, a weekly podcast, monthly. But this is an as and when podcast. Basically, when I come across content that I think suits the long form that is podcasting, then that's when I do it, uh, and that's what's happened here. Earlier this week, I posted a video of me catching up with Nicholas from the Fears Watch Company. We spoke about, it It was a fairly short video, it's 10 minutes long, 11 minutes long. Uh, we spoke for over an hour around loads of things. Uh, Nicholas is one of those guys that I've known for a while, and every time we sit down and catch up, I always feel motivated, always feel inspired, always feel, leaving the conversation, feel buzzing to do stuff. And I, I love catching up with people like that, and, and Nicholas is, is a a great supporter of what I've been doing and, and I'm very grateful for that. And it's great to get him on the channel or the podcast. Uh, and as I mentioned, that kind of done a 10 minute video of what you're gonna hear now, but we go into more detail. It's, it's more of a two way conversation talking about uh, business, both Bark and Jack and, and Fizz and, and what he's been doing, that transition of going from marketing into becoming a watchmaker for Rolex, what it's like working at Rolex, and then ultimately the challenges of going on to start your own business uh, and what that's been like for him, especially going through the whole COVID stuff. Uh, it's a long one, as I say, it's, it's an hour long, over an hour long. So grab yourself a coffee, get comfy, uh, and I hope you enjoy it. If you're driving, then don't get comfy, focus on what you're doing. Um, and as a side note, if you're on YouTube, drop me a little comment down below. Let me know what you think about um, this format of stuff. Uh, just a little bit of feedback or uh, ideas, and uh, I'd appreciate that. Anyway, grab yourself a coffee, and I hope you like this episode. I think we've been friends for about three years. Yes. Well, certainly I've known you for three years. I think we first met about two years ago at a watch event, and... I'd say three years ago yes, at a watch actually, event, yeah. but you didn't... I, I didn't have the channel, we hadn't actually met. No. And I was a little bit annoyed with you because at the time I was trying to start a watch company. <laughs> and then I met uh, Nicholas at Salon QP, I think it was 2017. Yes, yeah, I was there at 2016 and 17, yeah. Oh, it could have been 2016 then. Basically, if there's a watch event, I'll, pro <laughs> I'll probably be somewhere there with a glass of champagne in hand and a, and a smile on my face. But <laughs> I, was, I was really annoyed because I was, I was trying my original plan for Bark and Jack was to turn it into a watch company. Right. And then I went to this watch event, uh, getting inspiration, getting ideas, meeting people. And then I met you, a very young chap, <laughs> running a watch company that has genuine heritage. And that's ultimately the dream. So Nicholas runs uh, Fears Watch Company, which is the oldest I'll be very, I'll be very British and, and uh, reserved and say one of the oldest. One of the oldest. I suspect we might be, but, you know, Fears is as old as the US Treasury. So, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> right. we're playing in quite an, you know, a rarefied, you know, period. I always uh, say to people when they say, oh, in the watch world, how old is it? I go, well, Langer started the year before and Cartier the year after. Wow. So, you know, we're in that sort of, that nice reserved kind of area That's of amazing. being, you know, mid, mid 19th century. <laughs> That's superb. There's a few things that I want to talk about. Obviously, we're going to check out your new watch. Um, but can we talk about your journey into watches? How did yes. you go from being you pre-watch person, unless you've always been a watch person, how did you make that transition into liking watches and ultimately taking on a company? Well, this is the interesting thing because there's the part of me which has always loved watches. 
and that part goes back to when I was a teenager. Right. Um, and back in, you know, you know, it's very kind of you to say I look youthful, but you know, at 33, I don't always feel that youthful. You're 33? <laughs> 33, yes. I thought you're like 25 or something. <laughs> no, that's very kind, but no. You can I, tell you don't have kids. This is why I look like <laughs> a sack of potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> no, 33 and... Uh, oh, you've uh, made me feel... I genuinely dislike you even more now. <laughs> but back when I was a teenager, beginning to be interested in watches, you know, there weren't, there was forums, but there weren't, there was no Houdinki. There was no, mm. YouTube hadn't actually started. There was no Facebook groups. And so if you wanted to read about watches, there was How to Spend It magazine. There might be the odd, weird watch publication. And it would always be in WH Smith's on the top shelf next to the porn. And you'd always <laughs> feel very like this weird, geeky person buying a watch publication. And, you know, I, I would always buy these. Or usually my, my dad would kindly buy them when he was up in, in London for work. And, you know, I'd love reading about watches. And when I was 16, I decided I wanted to buy a proper Swiss-made watch. And I set my heart on an Amiga Seamaster GMT. It's called the White, the White, I think the Great White is what it's right. called now. And it took two years of having a Saturday job, a Sunday job, mowing people's lawns, oh, and doing my A-levels, until I eventually, at 18, was able to walk in to watch the Switzerland and buy it for the ridiculous sum of 1,300 pounds. Amazing. Which, to an 18-year-old, that's a huge amount of money. Absolutely. And at the time, people didn't wear watches costing a thousand pounds. Yes, there was Rolex and stuff. But put it this way, the Polar White Explorer 2, because I also considered that, mm -hmm. that was only going to be 1750. So, you know, it was ridiculous how watches like that just weren't being bought by people who could afford it because people didn't buy expensive watches. And here I am, this weird, geeky 18-year-old <laughs> buying this watch. And of course, now you look back on it and you go, wow, you've got a, a chronometer rated Amiga for £1,300 brand new. But, you know, that's how things were. Anyway, I, I, I loved that watch. But when I, I went to university, I studied economics. Um, I did an internship with Deutsche Bank. I was right. going to go into, I was going to become a, a master of the universe. <laughs> um, and then I had the, you know, the luck or the, <laughs> or the misfortune of graduating in 2008 just as the entire financial world that I thought I was entitled to work in blew up in my face. And mm -hmm. I scrambled around for a job graduating and I ended up in consumer PR, so right. working in marketing. And I loved it, it was great, it was creative, it was fun. But being quite dyslexic, I realized I had a sort of ceiling to how good I could write a press release or writing proposals. And also every time you did a launch, that was it done, on to the next thing. Right. And I was like, you put so much energy, effort, resources, time, passion into creating something for it to just be like, right, it's appeared in the paper, now on to the next story. Yeah. And I, I wanted, at that point I was like, actually, maybe I want to do a job with my hands, more physical, less computer-based, and maybe I want to do something that has, at the end of the day, I can point to what I've done and it, it lasts. Mm -hmm. So in 2010, I started looking around and thinking, right, what, what could I do? And I've had two passions since I was a kid. One of them is trains and one of them is watches. So I investigated becoming a watchmaker or a train driver. Right. And, you know, I basically did that thing, you know, when you ask a seven-year-old, what do you want to be when you're older? You know, blank slate. Don't worry about paying the mortgage. Don't worry about, like, practicalities of where you're living. Just what would you like to do? And when I looked into it, I realized I didn't want to do the shift work of a train driver. Um, 
but watchmaking looked quite interesting. So I wrote a two-page covering letter explaining why a career transition from consumer PR to watchmaking was a natural progression. <laughs> Brilliant. And I sent it off to all the big watch companies who had a base, a service centers in the UK. Mm -hmm. And yeah, after seven years, uh, se sorry, seven years, se after seven months, uh, a lot of persuasion, a lot of interviews and practical assessments, Rolex begrudgingly took me on. That's incredible. I wonder if your, your, your learning of PR helped with your delivery of the covering letter? Well, I made sure when I sent it in, I sent it in in a dark blue envelope. Because when you work at any company, you receive post every day, mm -hmm. you're going to notice the dark blue envelope because everything else is cheap and white. And so is there a connection that you have? Is dark blue your favorite? Because I think it's, it's just a very, very it's a beautiful, it's a smart color. Um, it's bizarrely, even though it's our corporate color for fears yeah. today, that's actually linked more with the fears heritage. But interestingly, right. when I was applying to Rolex, my mother was explained to me that, oh, it must be in the blood. You had relatives who had, you know, who had been uh, watchmakers, your great grandfather, your great great grandfather. Sorry, so <clears throat> did you know when you applied to Rolex that there was watchmaking in the family? I knew as I was applying, I discovered there was watchmaking in the family. That's crazy. But, and this is the key thing, I didn't know about fears being right. in my, my family's history. And that's the weird thing. And it's that wonderful thing that parents tell you so much, but don't, <laughs> don't tell you the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, in 2011, I, I rocked up St. James's Square in London and donned a, a, a white lab coat with Rolex crown proudly in, in, um, embroidered onto the pocket and started an apprenticeship. That's amazing. And I was there for five incredible years. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting. I always try and not comment too much on Rolex just because it's, it's a very humbling experience working there. Inside, the company is very humble. From mm -hmm. the outside, it appears to be very sort of, you know, you know, aloof and arrogant, and that's not the case at all. The people who work there are very proud to work there. They're treated very well. It's, it's a classy place to be at. Mm -hmm. And also as a brand, I mean, not only just from a watchmaker standpoint of training, but actually to then, you know, where I am today running my own watch company, you go, well, actually Rolex get a lot of things right. Yes, a lot of things, you know, anger people, certainly all the things to do with the ADs and wait lists and all this. But actually, fundamentally, there's a reason why they're so successful. Absolutely. And a lot of it is by having the guts to be their own thing decade after decade, which is very inspiring when you do your, your own thing to say, no, I'm not going anywhere near what they do, you know, waterproofness, you know, sports, tool watches. No, no, that's not fears. But actually the, the fundamentals of how they do things, they do things properly. There's no cut corners, you know. When you're sat at the workbench, the workbench is made in Switzerland, out of Swiss wood, you know, it, it, it's, and that's shipped over to England. You know, it's, it's that authenticity that members of the public don't see, yeah. but it's so core to the brand and they don't even pay me to say that because <laughs> <laughs> I left them in 2016. <clears throat> That's amazing. So talk about that, that transition. What was the motivation to leave? So I'd been there about two, two and a half years. And as you do when you're at any big company, you, you, you get to meet the pensions guy. And you, <laughs> sure. and you sit down with him, really nice guy going through, you know, right, 
you own a house, you have a mortgage, and da, da, da. and it was the moment where you suddenly go, right, I'm 20, you know, 20 something, and I've got 40 years of working, according to him. Um, and, that, and then you go back out to the workshop and you go, that probably means 40 years, if not sat at the exact same bench, sat at one of the next benches. Mm -hmm. The work is very satisfying. At the end of the day, you can point to the watches you repaired. And one of my, my roles I did for many years was the final quality control checks. Right. So checking watches before they go back, back to their owners. And it was that moment you go, do I want to do this for 40 years? You know, I've, I've worked three years in, in marketing. I became a manager. I was on a good salary. I took a 50% pay cut wow. to move to Rolex. And I do want to be here. But do I want to be doing this, you know, forever? And, mm -hmm. you know, at 33, if you do the maths, I just count on the older end of the scale of being a millennial, you know. <laughs> sure. And, you know, there's that sort of stereotype. Millennials always were kind of wanting more and, you mm -hmm. know, wanting to. But there is that thing where you suddenly go, actually, what if I do want to achieve more, not achieve more financially, not achieve more, certainly not financially, try running a watch company. <laughs> um, maybe it's a good thing you didn't set up a watch <laughs> <Yeah>. company. <laughs> Your family will be much better off for it. Um, but actually, what if I do want to create something more? Mm -hmm. And I went home to see my parents one weekend and over Sunday roast, I'm saying to my mum and dad, I'm going, oh, I like what I'm doing but I feel maybe there is something more I could do. Maybe one day I would set up my own business. You know, I've always been, you know, having done a degree in economics, I've got an interest in business and entrepreneurship, but mm -hmm. I don't know what that business would be in. I mean, that was the crazy thing. At that point, I was looking at it going like, I'd set up a business, but doing what? Yeah. And as my mum's serving the roast potatoes, she jokingly goes, well, why don't you restart the family watch company? Oh. And you, you know, when people go like, oh, what was your eureka moment? What was the yeah. light bulb moment which made you go, and then I knew I had to set up this. And you go, well, I can literally point to a Sunday lunch and go, that moment I realized, yeah, this Imagine is what I've got to do. Imagine being told that you've got a watch company in the family. It's, yeah. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's also very disruptive because, sure, yeah. you know, at that point you're going, well, look, you know, I've been Rolex a few years, you know, I've... You know, and, and at that point, I'd started buying watches and building up a watch collection of my own. Um, you know, I had a good, safe job. Mm. You know, unless I, I screwed up, I, you know, maybe my line manager would say different, but I potentially <laughs> had a job for life, sure. you know, and a good pension. I, I did not have worries. There was yeah. not going to be rounds of redundancies and things like this. Um, but that train journey back into London, I'm thinking, actually, Maybe this is it. And I remember, I remember a few weeks later, then going out for dinner to the local pub with my husband and saying to him, is this crazy? And the crazy thing is, he could, at that point, he could have said, yeah, that's crazy. We have a lovely life. You know, mm -hmm. we can go out for dinner. We can go to the theater. We have free time because when you work, you can't take the watches home to work sure. on them. You know, yeah, yeah. five o'clock workshop closes, you go home. You don't think about your work. Time. Um, which compared to when working in PR and, you know, in an office where you're working all the time, you know. Or running your own business. Or you, you never have time off. <laughs> thank goodness for that secret eighth day that we don't tell yeah, most people yeah. about. Um, so, but he said at that point, he was like, well, no, if you want to do it, you should explore doing it. Now, when we left, we met at university in Freshers Week. When we left university, he got a job to work at Ernst & Young. Right. And two weeks before his start date, Cambridge University said, oh, someone's dropped out. We've got a place for you to do a PhD. 
fast forward to today, he's now a reader at the University of Kent. He, he's a maths lecturer, wow. he researches, he travels around the world creating new maps, he's an academic, he's a mathematician to his core. Mm -hmm. And you go, wow, you know, and, but at that point, we had been looking to move into a house, or everything was based on him having a nice, safe, secure job, yeah. and instead we threw it out the window and he went back to being a student for another three years. And I think it's that thing that actually, 99% of businesses don't happen because people don't take it beyond an idea. Yeah. And people go like, oh yeah, but you just need the guts. Come on, you know, this isn't mm -hmm. the case. You need a family who will support you behind Absolutely. it because it's not just the finances, it's also the emotional support. It's also the, the sacrifices, not just the, the money sacrifices. You know, I sold my entire watch collection, some of which I tried to hold on to and then I had to sell and we'll come on to that why. But, you know, it's also the not seeing friends, not seeing family, mm -hmm. not, not having free time. It's, it's not a decision for it's not something that impacts that moment or even that month. It's a lifestyle change. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's, you it's know, a huge change. November will be four years since Fears restarted. Amazing. Next February in 2021 will be five years since I left Rolex, which was just, yeah, I mean, the scariest thing you could do. And, you know, I was very, I was very grateful. I, I had a very blessed, you know, farewell and I'm still good friends and regularly meet up with a lot of my former colleagues. But it, it was that weird thing of going, heck, I'm not just leaving to go to another watch company. Yeah. I'm leaving to basically jump into a pool. And it's interesting, years later, the number of people who then come out of the woodwork and go, I'm really impressed. I didn't think you'd make it past year one. And you realize, <laughs> actually, when you're doing it, you, you can't think like that. Yeah. At four years into this, you know, I now have a team. I now employ people. We, we're about to launch, I think, the you know, 15th, 16th watch we've launched since the company restarted. And you look at all this and you go, actually, yeah, I should have failed in the first year. I was so naive. Like, <laughs> I was so wet behind the ears. Like, I, I think that naivety is a blessing at the same time. Absolutely. Um, looking back at my, I mean, it's, uh, making a video on YouTube is, is nothing compared to making a watch. But there's certainly the, the topics that I talk about and the, the technicalities behind what I was doing I didn't have a clue, no. but it's just a matter of getting on with it. And you, this is you, it. you make do with what you can. And I think it is that naivety that, that can help people. You don't know what you don't know, so you just you crack on. A few weeks ago, we did a, a photo shoot for the new watches launching, and we, we took over a suite at a hotel in Notting Hill, and we had a photographer, a stylist, and a model, and we did this 10-hour photo shoot. And I was there just as the client, you know, um, or the fact that I'm just, you know, too OCD with these things and want to make sure it's all done right. Um, but it was while I was there, I was kind of thinking back to 20, 2016 and the first photo shoot, photo shoot, was me basically going to the local restaurant and there being an attractive waiter and waitress and saying, look, you know, if, if I give you a bit of money, can I take some photos of you wearing a watch? And me borrowing a friend's camera, doing a night course to learn how on earth to use a, you know, a, a, a DSLR. And I look back at those photos and they were all right for launching back then. You know, this is the thing. Today, I still own 100% of Fears, but I restarted Fears on just my savings, mm -hmm. you know. And actually, this is a very interesting thing. You sort of look at watch companies when they start and there's two ways they're done. They're either done self-financed and you'll find that the person is doing everything you know for the first two and a bit years 
every watch was dispatched by me. Every single email replied to me. I was doing the Instagram, I was doing, I was even doing all the bookkeeping. You know, every single thing was done by me. Um, and fast forward to today, and what's nice is going, actually, you know, I'm, I'm, confident, I'm confident enough in knowing what I do well to be able to go, yeah, you know what? I'm not the best at social media. Mm -hmm. So we'll get someone who actually gets that. Yeah, when it comes to you know, dispatching a watch and letting people, the, the owner know what the tracking numbers are and all that, yeah, someone else is better at that. I I'm, I'm take far too long to write emails. You know, and, and especially when it comes to building the watches. You know, we build every watch here in the UK. I know that the watchmaker who is building those watches does a far better job than if I was to start going, oh, you know what, I'm going to build every single one. Mm -hmm. I, I realise very quickly, no, it's, I know what I bring to the table and what I can do and I feel happy and comfortable with that. And, and that's what a successful leader is. A successful leader is someone who understands where their strengths lie and have the ability. You mentioned about having OCD. I used to train managers, so I'm quite interested in this stuff. But yeah. it's a, a strong manager, a good leader and a strong manager is someone who understands where their weaknesses are and their strengths are. Uh, and you are far better focusing on what you're good at and getting people in to, to help with the other bits. I mean, I remember saying to, uh, uh, to what, one of the ladies who does the dispatching, and I, I spent an hour showing how to wrap it, where exactly to put the tape, and how to do the ribbon perfectly. And she said, she was like, wow, I, I always thought, like, why, why does this matter? But she was like, I've, I've watched you spend an hour showing me how to wrap something. And I said to her, I said, look, I don't want to, I don't want to be flippant about this, but my husband and I aren't, we, we've made a decision, we're not going to have children. This is the legacy. This mm -hmm. is the thing that outlives us. Would you let your kid go out without their hair brushed, without, you know, <laughs> their clothes being clean? No, you wouldn't. Because, you know, you feel proud. You, you yeah. want, it's the same feeling for me. It's going, actually, also, it's my family's name on every single dial. There is, you know, though because I come down on my grandmother's side, I don't have fear as my surname. There are enough fear family members out there who literally are seeing their name on a dial and there is a feeling of going yeah they're not involved in the business but I'm respectful of the fact that you know what I do will reflect on how the family is perceived and mm -hmm. I mean we're no we're not like some the fear family is not some great dynasty you know it's not like <laughs> you know we're not like the Rockefellers or anything like that but you know at the same time it is that thing of family you know you don't you've got to be respectful and mindful of this mm -hmm. um, you, you, you don't have to be beholden to all the legacy and all of the heritage but you have to be respectful to it and that does influence how you do things and the, you know there's a thousand and one little details in how we not just make the watches but how we operate the company that goes, we do not do things a certain way because it would be disrespectful to the family or the people who train to become a craftsman or woman and then build the components or build the watch. It's an old fashioned way of seeing it, but also fears ran for 130 years before closing in the 70s. That's incredible. The way I see it is, you know, in my business plan, I talk about, yeah, what, what's our plan for this year? Five years, 10 years, 50 years. 50 years puts me in my 80s. But actually, you know, I appreciate I won't be running the day-to-day -day business in, in, in 50 years. Hopefully, I'll, at that point, I'll be life president or something. <laughs> but the fact is, you know, I want the business to do that. Well, you know, think of everything we've experienced in six months. Mm -hmm. Fears went through two world wars, the Great Depression, the Spanish flu. You know, it went through the court, start of the courts crisis. Is, is that know, what closed it down? 
It wasn't entirely, no. It was the third generation, the third managing director, who was my great-grandfather. Right. He retired in the late 60s, and very quickly it became apparent that the next generation may not be wanting to continue it. And you look at, you look at British family-run businesses in the 60s and 70s, and they either became, you know, the Lever brothers became Unilever, right. or they closed. You know, if you look at how many cities had so many family-run businesses, enterprises, you know, Fears used to employ 100 people. You know, it was a sizable business, but it was at a period in its life where it's going, actually, this is not a happy time for the watch world. Yeah. And it wasn't something, nowadays, you know, I'd hope the name would never just disappear because businesses are bought, they're sold, you get investment, you know, all kinds of things. There's so many more sort of ways that a business can continue. Mm -hmm. Back then, that didn't happen. I mean, you know, at the moment, there's a lot of talk in the Swiss watch industry about what brands are going to disappear after right. the pandemic, yeah. you know. Well, we're still operating on a fraction of the brands we had before the start of the 1980s. You know, the 80s, the number of Swiss brands just shrunk, the whole industry shrunk. And a lot of those names were just lost forever. Right. And, you know, Fears is part of that, that same story, just over in Britain. Um, so the business closed. but. The fact that it had gone right through till the 70s, you know, um, for me, that's kind of, you know, 130 years is a long time massive, to have been massive, operating. Massive, you know? absolutely massive. And, and, you know, they survived so many, so many different things, so many obstacles, which is why, you know, when we went into lockdown and I was closing my office in the showroom mm -hmm. and I'm thinking, I, you know, at that point you go, well, I don't know when I'm returning here. Yeah. You know, yes, the government's saying it's a free week lockdown, but... I don't know if it's three weeks, three months, three years. Um, but it was interesting because as I'm like packing everything up, I sat down in one of my, I, I have a very sort of Mad Men styled office, my, my personal <laughs> office, it's all mid-century furniture. And I sat down in one of the comfy chairs and I looked and I have the portraits of the previous managing director. So I'm number four, I'm the fourth managing director. And I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, you guys went through this or worse mm -hmm. and yet you kept going. Yeah. It's kind of like, actually, yeah, I need to do that. And, that, that, and that's the thing. And you go, actually, the finances, the, the, the money side of it doesn't point to going, you've got to do whatever it takes to keep a business going. And I still remember talking to my, uh, my accountant on the day we were locking down. And she was going through all the books. And I was like, right, how much cash do we have? How long will the business go? Because sales at that point had gone to zero. Right. And she was like, right, well, the good news is you run a very lean ship, um, despite looking and acting very extravagantly. I actually, I'm half Yorkshire. My dad's from Bradford and I've, I've had a Yorkshire upbringing. So I'm actually at my core quite frugal and you know, I know where the pennies are going. Mm -hmm. She said, but the downside is there's no easy wins. There's no like, oh, well, get rid of these subscriptions and stuff. Sure. And then she goes, right, out of all your costs, payroll is number one. That's mm -hmm. the biggest, so you need to cut that. And I said, no, we're not cutting payroll. She was like, well, you have to cut it. And I said, no, no, we're gonna keep everyone paid. I said to her, right, well, how long can the business operate paying everyone 100%? Like I, I'm gonna run this into the ground, cash-wise. Like we will, we'll run the business into the ground, but make sure everyone is paid up until the last minute. And she goes, right, well, you've probably got two, maybe three months. So I said, okay, if I take a 100% pay cut, she was like, right, well, that now buys us a few extra months. So you go, right, well, so I'll do that. So we're not that. talking years. No, we're not talking years. And that's the thing, because nowadays, and I reflect on this back now, and you go, Businesses need to carry more cash reserves. Mm -hmm. But I'm a small business. You know, 
sales come in and you go, that is wonderful, but I've also got invoices to pay. Yeah. And, and also, you know, I've always run fears the last four years. We've never paid an invoice late. And that's built a lot of very goodwill with our, our suppliers. But all of our suppliers are small, family-run enterprises, the people making the cases, making the dials. These are small European-based businesses. And actually, my paying the invoice on time affects their payroll, affects them. It has such a big knock-on effect. You know, know, and, and that's what's scary about recessions and, and things like this, is that if, if one person doesn't pay that invoice, it can have such a, like a butterfly effect. It can have this such a knock-on effect further down the chain. And you know, it's a very interesting thing because, you know, quite rightly, nowadays we talk a lot about sustainability. And I think people too often link sustainability just with the environment. Mm -hmm. The environment is absolutely key. But let us not kid ourselves. We're making watches out of hard metals that are mined the other side of the world and shipped. And you know, it, it's a dirty business to make steel, to make titanium. I mean, if you look at the amount of energy needed to make titanium, it's phenomenal. Precious metals, you know, all of this. But the way I view sustainability being very important is going, are you making, okay, are we making something that will last almost indefinitely? Mm -hmm. I can keep being serviced. Can, and this goes back to when I worked at Rolex. You know, you're seeing a 1950s oyster and it can still be polished to look as good as new. And I can hear your viewers who are going, <laughs> leave the patina, leave the scratches. True, but you know, the fact is, someone would come in with a watch and say, oh, I bought this watch in 1962. I still wear it every single day. And you're going, they've owned one watch. Yeah. That is sustainable. And, but there's also the sustainable aspect of saying, you know, the fact that you know, I work with small independent suppliers, the fact that all of the people who they employ are paid a proper wage, they have a pension. When they all went into lockdown in different stages, everyone was still paid, there weren't redundancies. That actually, to me, is also a sustainable way of going. You know, we don't want to lose those skills, those crafts. And people go like, oh, but you know, there's someone in a workshop using a CNC machine. Yes, but actually you've got that person who's trained to know how to use the CNC machine. And then, you know, as we do, a lot of hand finishing. These are very important skills that people have spent decades learning. But also the, the, the connection between you and that employee is, is massive. It's, yes. it, it, it shows a level of respect that large corporations uh, don't necessarily show. Uh, and I think, yeah, it's, it's nicely personal. Well, I mean, so on that Friday, I go, right, you know, yeah, and I, I, on reflection, maybe I was being, feeling a little, a little dramatic with everything going on. You know, the world is <laughs> locking down. I'd only, uh, the day before, got in from Florida from a failed family holiday. So I was meant to be on a beach in Florida, and there I was in my office closing it down, talking about how much cash we had left. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I make my decision. I'm going to cut my, my wage to zero. You know, we're, we're just going to keep operating, keep working. And I go home, and I say to Chris, my husband, I go, right, this is what I've done. He's like, well, that's the right thing to do. How are we paying the mortgage? <laughs> I'm like, oh yes, oh yes. And this is, don't forget, we're talking at this point in March, there's no furlough scheme and we didn't use the furlough scheme. Everyone kept working full, full, full through pandemic. Also, there was no mortgage holidays and things. So suddenly you're going, oh yeah, actually, that's a good point, right. So the next day I'm driving around Canterbury, handing in a CV, first CV I've written in 10 years. And two days later, I had five night shifts a week at Asda. Amazing. <laughs> and so for two months during lockdown, I would get up at midnight, shower, shave, have a cup of tea, a slice of toast, walk two and a half miles to Asda, because of course, typical, my car broke down on the first shift and no <laughs> mechanics were open. 
do a six hour shift on my feet, come home, have an hour sleep, and then wake up and run a watch company, and then go to bed at five in the afternoon. Where, where does this, this work ethic come from? Because you mentioned earlier about <clears throat> having Saturday jobs, Sunday jobs, mowing lawns and things. Where's that, that work ethic come from? I don't know. I think a large part, you know, my, my father is a, he works in the city, he's a corporate lawyer. And I grew up with, you know, my father, you know, every birthday it was like, you know, where your father's in Johannesburg, here he is on the phone wishing you happy birthday. And so I just grew up with that. Every holiday he would be sat there on his laptop. And lots of people go like, oh, that's awful. That's, I go, no, 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 no. Like, you know, half my schooling was uh, uh, a comprehensive in London. And then when I was a teenager, we moved out into the country and I then went to a public school paid for by the fact that my father worked every hour to provide. I'm very lucky to have had that, that upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there was a big thing of, you know, when it came to starting fears, there was no question that they, my par- would my parents give any money? No, it's up to me. I mean, I remember as a teenager going, oh, you know, I, I have a, a small clothing allowance at 15 going, oh, you know, I'd like, uh, I'd like maybe this should be upped a bit more. And my parents were like, yeah. Great. Next next week's your final allowance. Go and get a job. Brilliant. And yet, you know, I was going to this nice public school, mm-hmm. you know, and living in a, in, a, in a nice, comfortable home. But it was that actually, no, you know, you, you earn your money. And I think it's just, you know, looking at him working hard. And, you know, as I say, some people would look at that and go like, oh, no, no, he should have been around that. And I go, no, actually, he really taught me that, yeah, if you are prepared to work hard and work smart, mm-hmm. you know, there is some reward in that. And the reward isn't just financial. The reward is actually, you know, collapsing into bed and going, actually, it's been a long day, but it's been a good day. I've yeah. created something. But often people say to me, what, why, why am I working, you know, six days a week, at the moment, seven days in preparation for the launch? Often I can't really answer it. And know, <laughs> I've found that and it, when I had a day job, I struggled to be motivated for that day job, to give it 100%, to, to deliver what I knew needed to be done to be successful at that job. Yeah. But the motivation now to work, I work seven days a week. There isn't, when I go on holiday, there isn't a time when I don't do at least go through all the emails, yeah. social media, all of that prepping. But the motivation is different. It's fun. There's, you're yes. building, like you mentioned earlier, you're building something that it, it does feel like a child. It does feel like part of the family because the whole family is involved. Yes. Yeah. My, my kids help unwrap straps and, and prepare. I don't, is that legal? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> family business. Just don't tell uh, the HMRC. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but, but that's it. The motivation is, is completely yes. different. And yeah. I have to say a big thanks to you. You probably don't remember this. Uh, and it's probably just a phone call, but actually the, the first day, the day that I left my job to start doing Bark and Jack full time, the following day, I picked my laptop, went over to the South Bank Centre on the south yeah. side of the River Thames, where I used to go do work out of the flat. And I sat down, opened my laptop, and I had this sudden, just this rush of fear yeah. of anxiety of what have I done <laughs> I've left it was an all right paid job it was a, a safe job I've got a family and a mortgage to pay for <laughs> what have I done and in that moment you called 
Right, okay. And I picked up the phone, and the first thing you said was, it's scary, isn't it? <laughs> and, yes. And that just immediately just calmed my nerves. And I don't know how you figured out to call then. I don't know I why don't, you called. I don't remember what the actual reason for I you probably, called. I think it was, I, you know, you're going through Instagram, and I probably, because I follow your personal one, I probably saw you kind of like, oh, you know, day one or something. And I thought, everyone's going to be going, congratulations, this is wonderful. And I was like, I... I, I've been there. I know yeah. exactly what there is inside. I remember, I, I remember, because I remember my first day, the leap year in 2016, Monday the 29th of February, 2016, my first day of working full-time for Fears. And here's an Easter egg. That's why on any of our date watches, it's always photographed on the 29th, because okay. that was my first day, the leap year day. And I remember waking up and, you know, right, starting work, you think, oh, no. What have I done? Like, <laughs> why have I done this? And so the first call I made was to um, the organisers of Salon QP. Right. And I called them up and I said, I would like to book a stand for the November show. I will be launching my watch company. I would like to take a stand. Wow. I want to pay a deposit right now. And I thought, right, I'm doing it. I've now got six months. But, but that's, know, that's, that's such a public commitment and oh, such yeah. a solid commitment you to make. You put the stake in the ground. And, and the thing is, you know, for me, yes, I, you know, I've been saying to people, I'm going to do this. But if I'd launched in November that year or gone, oh, I'm just going to let it slip into the next year, no one really would have noticed. I would have cared. No one really would mm -hmm. have noticed. But, you know, I realized when I saw that post that you put up, I was like, the thing is, you are putting out things to the public. People know this about you. Mm -hmm. So actually, I know you're suddenly going, this is really worrying because it's not just you. You know, you've got followers, you've got people, you know, rooting for you, but also... If it, it fails, it's going to fail big. It's going to fail. There's not going to be a quiet failure where you left your job and then six months later go, oh, maybe I'll just kind of slink back in and, yeah. and do the job again. No, no, you've left and you've told the world you're doing this and, and that's exciting, but also very scary. But, but that, that call immediately just switched gears and you saying that calmed my nerves. The reason it calmed my nerves was this is the journey. Yeah. The journey is to get scared, but it, this is the start of the fight and it's game on now. This oh. is this is you doing it. And that, that was what I, again, I can't remember uh, what else you spoke about, but it was just that, it was just funny that the first thing you said was, it wasn't hello, it wasn't anything. <laughs> it was just, it's scary. It's scary. It? <laughs> but it's so right what you're saying about being scared because, um, you know, 2016 I launched the company and then 2017 you go, right, we've launched the company, the company's running. That's when we brought out the mechanical watch, the Brunswick watch. And I mean, to build the prototype, we launched it with the, just the prototype. And I mean, that cost everything. That was, you know, we're putting everything on red. Like, you know, right. all the chips are going on this. And that watch wasn't meant to be launched until next year. Right. Came forward by four years. Because in that first year, I'm one of these people where if there's some works in the industry, I pick up the phone to them. You know, I, earlier this week, I was having a gin and tonic with Mike France from Christopher Ward. You yeah. know, last week I was having lunch with peers from Pinion Watches. You know, the way I see it is we're all in the same boat. We're not competitors because actually we're all working in the same world. And, and, and you actually, see that when you go to the watch events. It's, it's fascinating as someone who was just uh, a watch buyer or part of the audience. When you go to watch events, these guys are chatting. You're going off to oh, different things and yeah. you are going off and bringing each other champagne and stuff. But it's, it's No, this is it. I mean, I, I remember in uh, 2018, it was a, a summer's day and I, it was a Sunday and I was in the office working and I suddenly looked down at my phone and it buzzed and it was a LinkedIn message from Max Busa. And wow. he was saying like, oh, you know, 
I just want to say I really like something you posted the other day. I was like, oh, thanks. Oh, I'm in the office, you know, happy Sunday. He's like, yeah, so am I. This is what we do. And you know, we do this like, cool. <laughs> okay, I don't feel any regret being in my office. Yeah. But you know, so go 2017, I'm launching that. 2018, we did a pop-up shop in central London, in Piccadilly yeah, remember that. For, for six weeks. 2019, I did my tour of the US. You know, I, I, I That's when you went see turn two? I did, yeah. yeah. I went to the States for two weeks on my own. I did a I, I did a, a trunk show in New York. I then went down to Tennessee for a few days, then up to Chicago for 12 hours. I, I literally <laughs> slept in that hotel room for four hours, then went to San Francisco, then back to New York. And it was one of the scariest things, because when you're going and you're traveling with a case of watches, you have to travel with a carnet document, which means you don't have to pay all the taxes. Sure. So which means, you know, I was the person arriving in every airport, going down the red lane, going, I need things to declare. And it, this is, you know, I, at 33, you sound very sort of weak when you're saying, I'm scared of all these things. But actually, it's scary because I've not done this before. Mm -hmm. So I go into 2020 and I'm going like, actually, every year I have to do something that pushes me outside my comfort zone. Because if, you, if you're comfortable, I don't want to be comfortable. I'm 33. I can be comfortable when I'm 83. Mm -hmm. But at 33, I, no, 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 no. And this year, it was kind of like, right, what are, what are we going to do? I think actually steering a company through a pandemic, actually going... You know, we're going to still do things. We're going to still launch new product. Yeah. And I, I won't lie, launching a watch today is so much more complex. You know, in the last couple of months, we've had four, not major, minor suppliers go bankrupt. No. And then you go, right, these are people we've worked with four years. You know, we've built relationships. We have a good working relationship and they've gone under. And then you try looking for new people and you find actually a lot of companies have gone under. A lot of the periphery companies. Mm -hmm. And you're suddenly going, actually, it's becoming very difficult to make watches. But this is where it really helps that you work in an industry where you can pick up the phone to other watch companies going, help, I yeah. need to find X, I need to find Y, who would you recommend? You know, I can trade some of my contacts with you. The world today is very different as a result of that. And it's, it's a better place that's for brilliant. it. That's brilliant. That's it's, nice to hear. Yeah, it's, it's tough. And so, you know, I, I, always find it, I always find it amusing because you have to take yourself away from being running a watch brand. You know, mm -hmm. you, you know when, you, when you see people, lots of people's comments. And I always like listening to what people are saying, what people are, you know, discussing. Um, but it is always very funny when, you know, it's like, oh, this brand just brought out a new dial color. That's it. And you go, no, no, that is a huge investment. There, there's actually a lot that goes into that. Now, you know, it's... Uh, some watch companies do screw things up. Yeah, there, are a lot, <laughs> there have been a lot of missteps over the years. But actually, you know, building watches, especially building watches in 2020, is really tough. But it shouldn't be easy. Yeah. It shouldn't be easy. I'm sorry, when, you know, I get contacted at least once a fortnight by someone saying they want to set up a watch company, most of those people I politely decline because you can tell they want to do it because they've gone, oh, it will be a laugh. I can make some money. Yeah. Good for you. I we're not having a conversation, but when someone is really, they, they, you see that little gem of like something, you go, great, wonderful. And the first thing I'll say to them is like, so tell me everything you're prepared to sacrifice and then double it. <laughs> because, you know, I have a fraction of the number of friends that I had back in 2016, because it turns out when you stop going to friends' birthday parties, you stop going out for dinner, you stop returning people's WhatsApps, eventually people get bored of that. Um, you know, I obviously, haven't had the holidays. I sold my watch collection. I mean, I, I planned to hold on to my one watch, which had been my Grail watch, my white gold day date. 
I'd wanted that since I was eight years old. And I bought it while I worked at Rolex. And I loved that watch. And I said when I left, I was going to keep that watch. That would never be sold. That would be yeah. my memento of my previous life. And then the Brexit vote happened. And the next day, my continental invoices went up by eight and a half grand because of the exchange wow. rate change. And I had already spent my startup capital. So very quickly, I'm just calling watch dealers going, I've got a white gold day date <laughs> sell. And they're going, you do realize this is the worst time to sell. I'm like, yeah, I know, I appreciate that. They said, well, okay, maybe we'll do it. Like, how quickly do you need it? And I was like, cash today, <laughs> like right now. And you look back on it and I go, that was my grail watch. Mm. I, I was wearing every day a white gold day date that I bought brand new and it was built to my specification, my dial, my bezel, amazing. Do I regret it? Not at all. Because, you know, the watch I wear on my wrist is something I created from nothing. You know, yeah. except for the movement, nothing on our watch is, a, is an off-the-shelf part. Let's, let's, let's crack them open. Absolutely. Let's, let's, let's have a look. So, uh, what have we got? Right, okay. These are the two current offerings. And so, for me, personally, what's nice to have these all together is you see the collection growing. Mm -hmm. I mentioned before how we've, you know, the new watches, I think the 16th, 17th watch we launched. But that's because some models have come, some models have been discontinued. But that's our, our core piece. So this is your Brunswick? The Brunswick White. That's the watch we launched in November 2017. So this November, we're celebrating its third birthday. I'm always a fan of, we avoid doing limited editions. We avoid doing watches that come and go. You know, mm -hmm. saying actually, you know, if you bought one of the first one of those back in, back in 2017, you know, you still see it in the brochure today. And that's very important to me, it, you sort of keep it going. And then last- other current. Yes, so that we launched the Brunswick Blue. We brought the Brunswick Blue out in 20, uh, 2019, so last November. Now, it shares the same case, the same movement, but it's a very, very different style dial. Because the temptation was to just make the white dial blue mm -hmm. and do the printing in white. But actually, I like the idea that each watch has its own personality. So it appeals to a different person. But also, that blue dial goes through 57 different processes. A lot of those are done by hand, which means that you know, we, our first batch of dials, we got 50 dials made. And when the, the German dial maker sent them to us, we rejected five quality control straight off. And I called them up, I said, we've rejected five, we need a credit note for those five. And they said, okay, just to let you know, we started with 120 blanks because the failure rate of making that dial, because it's on three different levels, it's got three different finishes, some of which are done by hand. It, it is, when you move the, the watch, it is stunning how the, the finishing no, the, the colours just alternates well, the between the inner and outer room. So here's the thing which people often refer to it saying, oh, it's a two-tone. But it's actually not two-tone. It's one colour of blue. But if you were to paint it blue, the different surfaces mean it would look different and it would always be that way. Mm -hmm. But when you do a galvanic coating, think of it like a plating bath, and you coat it in the blue, it means that it reacts to light. Right. It's a much more complex, much more expensive way of doing it. And actually blue galvanic coating is very complex. It's why so many of the first generation Royal Oaks discolour. The blue goes a champagne colour. Oh, right. 
but it means that you get this lovely change, this lovely effect in the light. And then when we come to the movement, we use a very good ETA 7001 movement. But we were chatting before we started filming about the movement. The fact is, we use a workhorse movement. We receive them brand new. Mm -hmm. The workshop in Britain strips them down, services them, decorates them, rebuilds them. We regulate them very tightly. But actually the movement is one of the least expensive parts of that watch. The watch hands on that watch you're holding are 110% of the value of the ETA. That's crazy. Because it takes a day to make a set. And the hand polishing to get the mirror shine and then the rhodium plating. And we make the hands in-house, which is quite an unusual process. So how much does this sell for then? So the Brunswick Blue is 3,350 pounds. So I'll be the first person when people say, how can an ETA watch cost that? Yeah. You go, we treat the movement well, but the movement is it's one of the many parts of the watch. It's also the only part that is uh, off the shelf as such. We make some modifications, but it's an off the shelf movement effectively. I try to explain this a few times in, in videos that the, the finishing of something drastically changes the price of it. It's, Absolutely. it's insane how, how much work goes in, whether it's, it's the finishing of the movement or finishing of the case. That's, it, you talk about man hours, woman hours, person hours, and that's, that's costly. Well, so you take the movement, once we've done the work to the movement, we obviously test it. We test it for a week or two. We then dial it up, test it for two weeks with the hands on, case it up, test it for another two weeks. Then it goes through several watchmakers for quality control. And then most importantly, it goes to the ladies in admin because they're not in a workshop. They are in an office environment under fluorescent light. And if they spot something, because sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees mm -hmm. when you're in the workshop. So you need to make sure in a real world environment, there isn't actually something there. And then most importantly, every watch goes in the Royal Mail and comes to my office which is down in Canterbury, the workshop's up in Norwich, comes to my office because if something's going to go wrong in transit, I'd rather, it's while it's being sent to me, I then do a week of testing myself. And then once it passes, effectively a month and a half of testing, I have in my personal safe these uh, seals that you put on the case back and I write the serial number of the watch because every watch has its unique sequential serial number mm -hmm. and put my initials and then the watch is ready to be sold. Awesome. And so what you're paying for is the fact that we don't have watches being sent back. Yeah. We don't have watches going out and breaking down. You know, touch wood, may this, may this continue. But the fact is, it's that over-checking, making sure everything is checked, double-check it, triple-check it, because it is very expensive to do that. But you know, we're talking about the finishing. You, know, you look at the Brunswick case, it has one flat surface on the entire case, and yeah. that's the rear sapphire glass. The bezel is a screw-down bezel, so is the case back. Right. So which one's the new one? So our new watch is Brunswick Salmon. And I called it Brunswick Salmon, but it could also be called Brunswick Copper. It's a very coppery tone salmon dial. Can I just point out, your new molds are absolutely stunning. There's so much depth to the new molds on these things. Yeah. Well, each numeral, so we'll get geeky for a moment. I'll tell you a bit about the numerals. So this is a brand new set of numerals created just for fears by Lee, one hour watch. Oh, no way. 
So he came down to the Fears archive, spent a day going through watches and adverts, and his brief was, I want to create a new contemporary set of numbers, but they have an essence of what's been done in the past. Because Fears is a modern watch company with an illustrious heritage. It's not a heritage company. And he created this set, which he named the Edwin, after the founder, Edwin Fear. Cool. And they are a contemporary set, but they have little references. But what we decided to do is rather than getting each of the appliques just stamped out in Asia and then shipped over, what we did was we said to the doll maker, we want them to have some depth, some real, you know, treat them like they're a jewel. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they take a piece of brass, they solder on the rivets, because each numeral is hand riveted onto the dial. They then laser cut out the shape of the numeral. They then CNC it to make sure all the dimensions are perfect. Diamond polish it, sandblast it, and then coat it in anthracite. If you were to paint it gray, it would be one color of gray, mm -hmm. and that would be it. But by plating it, by coating it in a real material, you get, as you can see, it goes from charcoal to pale gray. Mm. It changes in light. Just as that color of salmon is actually made using different layers of plating in 18 karat rose gold and copper. If you were to paint it salmon, it would be a solid color. But by using the real metals, the real materials, and doing it in the more traditional way of plating rather than painting, you end up creating something that changes in the light. The brushing, the surface brushing, is all done by hand. And there are so many tones in that dial as well. Yeah. Well, every dial is technically unique because there is someone sat there brushing. And if you were to machine brush, it would be too coarse. Right. You, the only way to get it that delicately done is by hand, a skilled, trained hand. But it means that in some lights, the dial just goes matte. Mm -hmm. It goes like opaline. And then you'll tilt it, and you'll suddenly see this graining. So it's interesting. When, when you get it in the light so that the dial goes matte or dark, the numerals then become light. Yes. And then the opposite, in the opposite, when the, the dial reflects the light, the numerals don't. This is it. Now, it means it's a very difficult watch to photograph. And actually, we had a gentleman in the States. Uh, he was, he's an owner of a couple of our watches. And he said with the Brunswick Blue, he said, I love the watch. And it's not a real complaint, but it's very difficult to photograph. <laughs> and so my team member, who's in charge of owner relations, said, what should we reply to him? And I said, well, simply put, we build our watches for the owner's wrist, not their Instagram followers. <laughs> And, you know, it's, a bit, it's, it's, a, it's being a bit cheeky, but actually it's true. It's going, no photograph will ever do the watch justice. No. Now, the downside is I'm a small business. We don't have a showroom on every best shopping street in, across the country. The, but the idea is going, in four years, we've not had one of these watches returned for a refund. And that is largely unheard of. And for no, me, absolutely. that's the testament of going, you make it so when you receive it, better than you expect. It should always be better. Now, as a result, you probably sell fewer watches because the photos won't always be as, as amazing as they could be. But I'm going, no, actually, I, I don't want watches going out. I don't want people feeling like they've, you know, they've invested in a small company mm -hmm. to buy something and go, eh, it disappoints. It's going, no, no. I want the, you to have this watch and enjoy it. is absolutely crazy. So also, I love that minute track around the yeah. outside. 
Have you seen what the the hour markers? Yeah, yes, you've got the pipettes. Yeah. So the and the pipette is the is your logo or is it from the hand or a bit of both? It's got a fun little story. So it started off being the shape of hands that Fears used to use. So it's not a syringe hand because right. it doesn't go into a long point. It ends in a short point. And when we made our first watch in 2016, I needed an hour marker that balanced it. And so we created the pipette, which is basically an hour marker with the same elegant point. And over time, people kept saying, oh, that shape is quite unique. It's almost like your logo. So we started experimenting with it as a watermark on Instagram photos. Mm -hmm. oh, I love that you're now using your logo more. So we've started, we said, it's our logo. It's a shape that is you know, unique to us. But what I like is it, it's there. And actually, this was the fun thing. When I said I wanted the pipette on the, on the hour markers, and they said, great. But it's as small as you can physically print that shape. You, you, the you resolution. Can, you can barely see no. it. So you are the second person I've shown that watch to who's noticed it. Most people, it's invisible unless you use a loop. And then at six o'clock, we've got the word England proudly printed because up until now, we've not put that anywhere on the watch. And then one day I thought, actually, you know what? We make a good number of the parts here. We don't make everything here. Mm -hmm. We're doing a lot of the finishing here and we're doing all the building here. We're also a British company that pays all our taxes here. <laughs> you know what? Actually, proud to put that on. Sure. And I do realize I'm saying that in Glasgow, so I have to be careful. You know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're slowly taking over Glasgow. This, this is on honestly absolutely stunning. The, the finishing is amazing. So you mentioned the case is finished in Germany? Made in Germany? Machined in Germany, Machined and then Germany. we do the final finishing here. Finished in England. And the same with the dials. Now, the with both of those suppliers, they're both small family-run businesses. They don't have websites. You know, you have to... I was introduced to them by another watch company who basically I'd been going for enough years where they were like, OK, you seem an OK sort, I'll make an introduction. You know, there's a lot, this whole area of companies. But when I started working with them, I was and still am their least expensive brand they make for. Right. Most of the brands they're making for are either on Bond Street or are the very high-end independents. And, but the fact is, you know, I go over there several times a year. You know, when I'm ordering a watch, uh, ordering a dial, a case, I don't do it over the phone. So as soon as the lockdown restrictions ended, I was straight on an easy jet over there to go and see them and, and talk about it. You know, as you know, when you're running a business, it's not, it's not about the financial reward. It's about creating something, but it's also about enjoying it. And for me, it's about enjoying, you know, work with the people I work with. Absolutely. Is this solid gold? No. So the Midas case is rather interesting. This starts off as a bronze case, and it's, that case is made entirely in, in England. Right. Um, each of those cases takes over a day to do the polishing and finishing. But what we do is rather than saying, here's a bronze watch, that's, that's not Fears. You know, I'm, I'm, it, it's not that sort of rugged field watch style. But Fears used to do a lot of rolled gold watches. Right. And I always like that sort of warmth you get with the rolled gold. So what we did was we took the bronze case, we coated first in copper, right. we then coated in 18 karat rose gold, and then nine karat yellow gold. And the two carats and colors of gold combined to create what I call, it's a warm, old yellow gold. Yeah. 
You know, this feels like a yellow gold watch from the 50s or 60s. But it also means that it doesn't carry the five-figure price tag. So how much is this one? So that one is 4,250. This dial is absolutely double. So with the dial, same dial layout as the salmon, but it's coated in silver. And then the numerals, we don't do the sandblasting. We leave the mirror polish mm. and then do the jewel gold coating on each numeral as we do on the hands. And even the buckle is jewel gold coated so that all the golds match. It's very important that it has got that whole, whole matching. It does have a nice old gold look to it. I, I love the look of old vintage gold. There's something special and especially, you know, Look at, look at how pink my skin is. I do, <laughs> I do not suntan, but I also don't wear 18 karat gold because yellow gold on my skin tone looks very brassy. Right. And rose gold is lovely, but you know, if you want that warmth of the old gold, it means it looks good on all skin tones. So the carat skin of tones. the gold uh, changes in color? Is it a different tone? So by using two carat weights, two colors of gold, you get that, you get that effect of the warmer gold. Right. But with all the watches, the watch strap's actually quite an interesting part. So we have all our straps are all handmade in Belgium. But rather than going and picking out from a catalogue saying we want this leather, this material, we get all the leather for our straps made in Bristol, right. the historic home city. And that's why this is stamped Bristol on the back then. Exactly. Bristol leather. Now Bristol leather is important because it's made by Britain's oldest vegetable tanner, who were founded six years before Fears, <laughs> and worked with Fears in the 20s. No way. That's so amazing. if you had, if you'd bought one of the first wristwatches made by Fears in the 20s and 30s, you would have had a Bristol leather strap made by the, using the same leather. And actually, this is an interesting point I always find, uh, find very funny, because people see a cushion case and they go, it's like Panerai. It's a tiny Panerai. <laughs> oh, it's a tidy Panerai. It's Panerai's yes, little brother. But the fact is, the first cushion cases that Fears made were back in 1923. Right. So, you know, one day when I've got my funds together, I'll, I'll start the lawsuit against them. <laughs> could be a decent one. But, you know, the, the watch strap is 70% of what's on your wrist. I mean, I don't need to tell you how important the straps are. <laughs> But, you know, to me, it is about going, actually, every part of it has to be well-crafted, well-put together. That is lovely. Right, so when are these available? So These guys are all available now? No, no, so the Salmon and the new Midas with the new dial, they are coming out on the 25th of September. Cool. But you've done a gold before, We did, you? with the white dial. That was it? Yes. I've, I've We're still offering that, but... But yeah. th these are the new this guys. Is, we're calling this the Midas for 2020, you know. Sure, sure, understand. And with the Midas, we build, historically, we only built five a year. Wow. Because they're so time consuming. But this year, because of lockdown, the German case maker closed, but the British engineering company was still able to operate with one person. So right. we were able to actually make 10 watches this year. <laughs> it's just the reality. So, you know, some, some people might say, you know, a small blessing out of out of a global pandemic sure, is we've been sure. able to double our production of golden watches. Amazing. Awesome. Nicholas, thank you so much for sharing this. It's, it's no. cool to finally get you on camera as well because I've been wanting to do this for a while, um, catch up with you. Uh, where can people find you? So primarily through the website, 
fearswatches.com. Uh, we also have an, we have an Instagram, fear, at fearswatches. Um, or if you want to see any of the behind the scenes, I have my personal Instagram, which is showing my slightly crazy life, which is just my name. Um, but yeah, fearswatches.com is where everything is. Cool. Guys, go check them out. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. The music track is called Takeaway and it is by Chameleon Glade.